When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Stacks. Crime were one of the first, if not the first, and certainly the greatest, West Coast punk rock band. Except Crime insisted they weren't a punk rock band. No, they were San Francisco's first and only rock and roll band. Created and fronted by guitarists and vocalists Johnny Strike and Frankie Fix, both sadly no longer with us, Crime transcended genres, making some of the most thrilling, eviscerating, subversive racket of the era. Hot Wire My Heart, Baby You're So Repulsive, Frustration, Murder by Guitar, Crime Wave, San Francisco's Doomed, Dillinger's Brain, I Knew This Nurse, Crime Were Fucking Magnificent. Back in August 2023, at the Ugly Things 40th anniversary weekend, I did a live interview with crime drummer Hank Rank, aka filmmaker Henry Rosenthal. It went so well that I invited Hank, Henry, to sit down for another lengthier interview for the podcast. Hope you enjoy our conversation. The story of crime begins with Frankie and Johnny. So let's talk about them and how they got the band started. They're both originally from Pennsylvania, right? That's right. Uh, Frankie and Johnny were, I guess you'd say, boyhood friends from Pennsylvania, Harrisburg. Right. And then, as I understand it, Frankie first moved out to Napa with his mom or, mom or something like that. And Johnny followed later. Uh, that's right. Frankie's mother moved to Napa, California. And uh, Johnny, who uh, reportedly was in a little, getting into a little bit of trouble with the law back at back east, he was a restless youth. <laughs> um, decided it was uh, would be good for him to uh, get as far away from Pennsylvania as possible. Uh, he originally considered New York, but thought that was too close and that he'd be tempted to go back. So he made the leap to go to the the land of good weather, California. And uh, he never never looked back. Right. So they reconnected in San Francisco. And this is like, what, 73, 74, something like that, I think. That's right. In the uh, early 70s, uh, Johnny reestablished contact with Frankie. Frankie would come down from Napa. 
they would listen to records and and dream big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know uh, Johnny and uh, Jane, his then girlfriend, they went to London in 72 to check out the scene. They saw Bowie. I think they met Bowie and Roxy Music and kind of got a feel for the whole scene and the sound there. Did he ever talk about that? Um I know I know about that mostly from what I what I've read. I know about uh, Johnny's uh, I know about Johnny's trip to London mainly from what I've read more than what he talked about. But I knew that he had made contact with uh, with Bowie and had seen uh, shows there that influenced him, and he sort of soaked up that scene and uh, brought that back to the states with him. It helped to refine his his vision as it was developing and he uh, also um, had uh, contact with the New York Dolls and uh, spent a, spent a night partying with them and uh, felt like uh, they were they were a band that he could really relate to right so they were taking these things glam rock the New York Dolls and then plus the music that they love from the 60s the garage band the early stones things like that, and trying to come up with something musical of their own. You know, I think Johnny used to say that, you know, they sort of aspired toward glam somewhat, but but their musical abilities were pretty rudimentary. They were much more primitive. So they kind of had to make a new approach. And I think, as you said, the dolls probably pointed a way foot forward because they were pretty rudimentary too, very primitive. Johnny uh, credits uh, a drunken conversation with uh, Johnny Thunders as uh, being his motivation to uh, abandon his Stratocaster and get a Les Paul because Johnny Thunders said it's it's a louder guitar. That's all Johnny needed to hear. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, those influences um, all kind of swirled around and came together, but... Um, they uh, from the beginning uh Johnny took a sort of a, a dim view of uh musical proficiency he considered considered that to be a more of a liability than an asset so he uh carefully cultivated his uh his primitive style <laughs> and it's a beautiful style and and Frankie's style and Johnny's style they're very very similar i mean they have the same approach and I guess what it was is they would write the song separately and whoever wrote the song would sing and the other one would play lead. Is that how it worked? That's right. Uh, even though they they appeared like great collaborators and uh, they were kind of like a Lennon-McCartney who never wrote together. So uh, they were similar in style, it's true. Uh, their influences, they drew from the same influences and uh, sort of reached about the same level of uh of proficiency on their instruments it was it, it was a it was a good pair yeah right so originally i think they spent a little while as the, the space invaders though i don't think they played any live shows under that name yeah the space invaders were were sort of a concept rather than a band uh and they it's funny uh, they um their original concept was that they were going to shave their heads and we're going to look for other uh, other musicians who would agree to do that and form a band. They never found any. <laughs> uh, so the uh, parallel to the monks is quite interesting in that the, the monks took the uh, the short hair approach, the shaved head approach, 
and uh, they had their they had problems finding people who would do it too. But they found them. Frankie and Johnny never did. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think there was a spacesuit involved. I think uh, Frankie had some kind of astronaut outfit. Yeah, Frankie had created a kind of a, a kind of a mylar jumpsuit uh, uh, with a uh, belt with a battery operated uh, flashing light on it, and he thought that 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 suit was going to be uh, their ticket out of there. <laughs> that was abandoned, and uh, a new concept came in. So eventually, they connected with Ron Greco, Ron the Ripper. That was the first person outside of the two of them to enter the picture. And tell me a little bit about Ron. Ron was, uh, uh, at that point that, that he met uh, Frankie and Johnny, had already been a very established uh, musician around the uh, Bay Area scene. He had uh, played with the, the Chosen Few, who eventually went on to become the Flamin' Groovies. He had played on Battles of the Bands at the Cow Palace with uh, with with big-name touring acts and and had achieved some level of notoriety. Uh, it's a little bit murky about uh, why, uh, under what circumstances he left the chosen few, but apparently it did. Uh, the best, the most plausible story is that uh, during uh, a show at the Cow Palace, uh, the band blamed Ron, who was playing drums at the time, for uh, messing up a couple songs. Uh, Ron says that this was because they were on a giant stage and couldn't hear each other, had no monitors, and everybody just scapegoated the drummer when things uh, went south. And that was the end of his career with uh, Roy Loney and, and the Flamin' Groovy, or what was to become the Flamin' Groovies. Right. He harbored a little bitterness about that too, didn't he, apparently? Yes. Uh, he was bitter about that. He thought he should have been taken along for the ride for the for the next iteration of the band but uh, that didn't happen so instead here he is uh, a bass now he's a bass player and they give him the name Ron the Ripper because he has a Gibson Ripper bass that's right uh, crime like to like to name people uh, their first uh, drummer was a guy named uh, Chris uh, they called him Chris Cat uh, their second drummer was um, uh, Ricky Williams, who they dubbed uh, Ricky Tractor, uh, a, ba a name he hated. They named him that because he was always talking about the t little toys he had at home that he liked to play with. And, and he had apparently toy trucks and tractors. And so they named him Ricky Tractor. So it was a good tradition in the band to, uh, to receive your, your band name. <laughs> Whether you liked it or not. Exactly. <laughs> so that was that lineup. Frankie and Johnny, Ron the Ripper, and Ricky Tractor that recorded the first single. And this is sometime in the middle of 1976 or early 1976. Correct. Mm -hmm. Why My Heart, Baby, You're So Repulsive. So arguably, I think probably you could say that was the first West Coast punk rock single to be released. That it is generally acknowledged to be the first West Coast punk rock single. That is correct. They, apparently, they wheeled their equipment from their re rehearsal studio to the Blue Bear School of Music, which was a, uh, well, it still exists, I believe, 
a music school with a with a tiny recording studio. Uh, they'd never been in a studio before. They went in, and uh, the engineer was certainly not prepared for what was about to happen. Uh, they the engineer said he didn't know what to record first after hearing them play, and they said they didn't want anything recorded first. They wanted everything to sound just like it did when they all played together. So. The engineer said, well, I don't know why you need me here. So uh, they said they didn't know either. And uh, so he set the levels and, and left, left the room, is uh, what I, the story I've always heard. I, of course, was not there, but uh, this is the stuff of legends now. Well, I mean, it sounds great, but recording everything all at the same time is... You know, how they used to make records when records all sounded great. Absolutely true. So they were right about that. Oh, absolutely. They were right about almost everything, it turned out. (laughs) Just a a few very important things they were wrong about. We'll get to those. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to those. (laughs) So then I guess Ricky Tractor departed and um, second drummer was, was Britley Black. I don't know if you want to tell us about how that transition came about. Well... Ricky was uh, a chronic substance abuser, I guess, to put it in, in uh, to couch it in the most polite terms, and became increasingly unreliable, uh, much to the consternation of the rest of the band. And eventually, uh, he just kind of drifted away, and they knew it was time to, to cut bait. Uh, Britley... Britley Black's father was a, uh, a quasi-famous drummer who had played with uh, with some local uh, big band groups and was a known as a as a jazz drummer. Britley had been playing drums his whole life and was it, it was a very very fine drummer. But uh, the match for the band was very difficult because uh, I think Johnny once said that Britley considered himself to be the latter day Keith Moon which he is the guy he pretty much emulated more than anybody. He played a bit like him and and certainly partied a lot like him. But uh, there was always a struggle in the band with Britley and also with Ron, whose bass playing was eccentric and Baroque, uh, Rococo, you could even say. I I love Uh, his bass playing. I do too. I think uh, Ron is a great bass player. And the crime sound would not have been the same without him. I, I know that's true. Because the, the, the counterpoint to the simplicity and directness of Frankie and Johnny's playing, uh, it really set up a beautiful dynamic in the sound. Yeah, and it was still primitive and daring. It wasn't like uh, flashy. It was, no. just, it was just unusual. Unusual and, and kind of nuts, kind of demented. I mean, it's uh, in, in the best possible sense of the word. Now, I, I have nothing but, uh, but admiration for, for Ripper's bass playing. Uh, there were issues over volume control that were constantly uh, an issue <laughs> at, at, uh, at play in the band. Uh, everybody wanted to turn up and everybody wanted everybody else to turn down at the same time. It's the, it's the eternal struggle in a band. <laughs> You usually learn after a while that that's not how it works, but I guess not in this band. Not in this band. Never that never uh, broke through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
that brings us to the second single, which is early 1977. This is two of the greatest crime songs, Frustration and Murder by Guitar. So give me your thoughts about these songs, this single. Okay, so in parallel with the recording of this single was, uh, you know, I was not in the band yet. I was not even aware of the band at this point. But the single was recorded at Mills College, uh, Center for Contemporary Music Studio. And it was recorded, it was produced by uh, a guy named William Novak, who went by the name Novak. He uh, was an experimental music composer, uh, as what was, what was going on at Mills at the time was a lot of uh, experimentation, er, early electronic music experimentation, alternative instruments, uh, performance art, and... Um, yeah, just a lot of very avant-garde activity with a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. Uh, Novak was involved with running the studio and through a mutual friend made a connection with crime and crime took advantage of this opportunity to record there. The resulting single was really, really good and represent probably a, a, a you know a, a high point in the history of the band there's no question about that uh, the artwork for the cover was astounding it was just a stark black and white image of Frankie and Johnny together and uh, it was around that time that I became aware of the band and it was through Novak actually that I did too because my connection with him was through this new music scene and the punk rock uh, punk rock didn't exist as a concept at that point so everything was very fluid moving back and forth between uh, the more avant-garde music and then this this sort of side project which was the recording of this strange rock and roll band and uh novak formed a band himself which was not typical at the time at mills college it was much more academically oriented, Novak formed a band called Novak and enlisted some of his uh, fellow uh, artists and and, uh, and composers to fill out the rest of the band. They wrote some songs, some, I don't know, I would call it, kind of call them novelty songs. They were a very funny band. Their, their songs were funny. And it was Novak who invited me to, I think it might have even been their record release party of their of their first single to uh, the Mabuhai Gardens. They were opening for this other band who I'd never heard of called Crime. So it was that night that I saw Novak and they went off stage and we were very, very pleased with them. It was great. And then Crime comes on. Crime hits the stage. They performed all their songs in about 15 minutes and then they left. I was stunned. Everything that I had loved about music from my youth, it seemed to me, had come back. The music from the mid to late 60s that kind of dried up and became awful in the early 70s, uh, I thought never to return. Well, I thought, well, here it is. It's back. And after they left the stage and Dirk Dirksen, the proprietor of the club, came out and announced, Crime needs a drummer. I decided in that moment I was going to be that drummer. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, tell us about how you set about making that happen. Mm. Well, uh, I got right to work. 
the first thing I I did was uh, somehow I got my hands on uh, copies of their records. Uh, I don't remember exactly how that happened. I don't think they were selling them at the show, but I guess I probably bought them at Aquarius Records, which at the time was the only record store in the Bay Area that was uh, selling independent and alternative music. At that time, all of the independently produced records could fit in a tiny little a tiny little bin. There weren't many. But I, I did a makeover myself to make myself look as much like a member of the band as possible. I put together a portfolio of photographs of myself showing how I could fit into this band visually, uh, not knowing how important that was to Frankie and Johnny, who were were much more concerned about the visual look of the band than the sound. And that uh, that worked out pretty well for me because I, I wrote them a letter and submitted these uh, this portfolio of photographs. And I told them, look, I understand what you're doing. I get it. I love it. I want to be a part of it. I am not a drummer. I do not own drums. But I've played other kinds of music and I think I can keep a beat. So if you let me in this band, I will get drums, I will learn how to play them, and I will be in your band. And within 24 hours, I got a call from Johnny saying, you're in. Just like that. Nothing else. So Ripper had been a drummer. He helped me. Uh, We went out to buy drums. So we went to Don Weir's Music City, the biggest music store in town. Uh, Guitar Center didn't exist, thank God, in those days. But uh, we went and they asked me what kind of drums I wanted. And the only drums I'd ever heard of, the only brand I'd ever heard of was Ludwig because of the Beatles. I'd never paid attention to drum manufacturers before. So they said, okay, Ludwig, and what what model do you want? I said, well, I just joined the, the loudest band in the city, so I want the loudest drums you have. They said, well, that would be the stainless steel set, which I later learned uh, was used by John Bonham for a period of time. So I figured, well, we're going in the right direction. But when it got down to sticks, they asked me what kind of sticks I wanted. I didn't even know there were different kinds of drumsticks. So I said, well, I guess I'm in the loudest band. I bought the loudest drums. I guess I want the biggest sticks you have. So they gave me uh, these marching band sticks that were so big I could barely fit my hands around them. And this was a huge mistake. It, it really impaired my progress learning to play drums, uh, having to haul these giant pieces of wood around. But uh, I did that for a, a, quite a while before I wised up and realized it's not really the size of the stick that determines the volume. It's, uh, it's how you hit the drum. So it took me a while, but I finally figured it out. But after joining, uh, after joining the band, uh, the next show the band had was booked for two weeks later. So I had two weeks to learn how to play the drums, learn the set, and uh, get ready for the stage. I was nervous. <laughs> yeah. And what, what, was, what songs were in the repertoire at that point? Oh, gosh. Um, well, it would have been the songs from the first two singles, uh, Hot Wire My Heart, uh, Baby You're So Repulsive, Murder by Guitar, Frustration. Uh, those were the, sort of the core of the set. Other songs around that kind of went and uh, came and went uh, as we would add them and then replace them over time with what we considered to be better songs. 
but uh, I kind of have to go back to a set list to, to recall individual titles. Can you hear a big difference between Parliament and Funkadelic? Are you able to name the members of Wings who were not Paul and Linda? And are you intimately familiar with every track on side six of The Clash at Sandinista? Then Discographiti's the podcast for you. Discographiti is a music obsessive's dream come true. Ugly Things friend Dave Gebro and the guests explore an artist or band's entire recorded output in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth often cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. Some of the many guests have included Vashti Bunyan rating her own catalog, Jim Florentine doing four episodes on Black Sabbath, Lou Barlow on The Zombies, members of Pavement doing a five-parter on their own work, Anthony Fantano on The Velvet Underground, Bob Mayer on The Replacements, Andrew Sandoval on The Monkees, and Don Randy rating The Great David Axelrod. Dave Gebro's also been releasing three shows a week for over a year in one of the most active Patreons humanly possible. You're not going to want to miss it. Discography is available wherever podcasts are consumed. We recommend that you subscribe and listen. Where was the first show and how did it go? The first show was at the Mabuhai Gardens in North Beach in San Francisco. And... Um... It uh, was a difficult show, but it's, I, I felt like I was under a tremendous amount of scrutiny. Uh, the former drummers of crime were standing in the front, uh, giving, giving me the hairy eyeball. And um, I, fe- I definitely felt that tension. But I also felt very protected by the band. Uh, Frankie and Johnny had uh, made a real commitment to me. And I felt uh, I felt emboldened by that. So even though those two weeks of rehearsal left my hands completely shredded with blisters that had grown and popped, and then other blisters on top of those, I was in such pain. I I had to tape the sticks to my hands to keep from from dropping them during that first show. And I got through. After all, crime songs were were always in four four. And uh, once you, once you get four four down, you're pretty much good to go. And they had always they had always wanted a simpler drummer than the uh, the cascading triplets of, uh, of of Ridley Black. So I was kind of uh, much more what they were looking for to be in the back and just uh, keep it all grounded so that so they could they could do their thing. Right. And and let's talk about the image. Uh, when you joined the band, were they, how soon after that did the police uniforms come in? Right. It was, it was um, fairly soon after I joined that the police uniform idea came to us. I, I guess I can't really stress enough how much of the music, the concept, the look, the fashion, the, the design, the poster design, the logo, everything really was the brainchild of Johnny Strike who was really a kind of a an unschooled but towering intellectual I consider um, he was missing some basic skills but he didn't let that stop him and 
he eventually sort of prevailed over what I would call a failure of the American education system to prepare him properly for the world. And I don't think that can be overstated. So really, Johnny's vision for the band is what guided us. And because I locked into that and understood it, I was able to really join with Johnny and work with him to elevate things even further. So that um, the concept of the uniform, the, the police uniforms, the badges, and then all the iterations of that that came after were really Johnny guiding us. And the, the whole fashion aspect of the band, I left to Frankie and Johnny. So Fra- Johnny and uh, Frankie had a lot of bizarre ideas about directions we should go, like lime green uh, track suits and things like that, that uh, thankfully we never, uh, we, we never went for. But uh, between the two of them, they had a great fashion sense and we were able to develop the band. Also, the whole visual aspect of the band, the, the posters and the flyers were very important. And those were all done really at the, uh, at the direction of Johnny up to the point that I joined the group and then I took over a lot of the, uh, the design work of the, of the group, but definitely along the lines that uh, Johnny had laid out. Right. And this ties into something I wanted to ask you about, that the fact that crime had this arrogant attitude about refusing to open for other bands. And, and at one point there was a, there was a poster, right, for the, for the crime were actually going to open for the damned. Yes. Again, this is uh, uh, just prior to my joining the group, but uh, I know the story very well. Uh, crime had been asked to open for the damned who were coming, I guess, for the first time to the Bay Area from, from England. And the band, the, the Damned had a, a, a reputation and, and it was uh, slated to be a big show. So the fact that Crime was asked to open was a kind of an honor. However, in Crime's typical arrogance, a poster was made that showed Crime as the headliner and the Damned in much smaller type. When word of this got back to the club, uh, there was, uh, they, they were upset and said that crime couldn't do that. And eventually, uh, crime was uh, disinvited to open. But that didn't stop them from putting up the poster all over town anyway. So <laughs> it's, the sh- it's, it's one, of the, one of the shows that never happened. Many of the shows that never happened were among crime's most uh, legendary gigs. Yeah, there's, an- there's another one too. Um, why don't we talk about that one? Yeah, there's another one early on uh, that was would have been, I guess, their crime's second show, and Johnny's concept at that time was, well, let's do posters that show uh, where our name is crime. We should uh, do a series of posters with famous criminals. So they started with criminal number one, Adolf Hitler, made a beautiful poster with Hitler's face. However, this show was at the Stud, which was uh, a gay bar. Uh, very famous gay bar in San Francisco. And when the management of the club saw the poster, they called Johnny and said, no, you are not playing. This show is not happening. So it's another very famous show that never happened. <laughs> and well, we got to talk about when the Sex Pistols came to town, one of the most famous shows that ever took place in San Francisco. Yes. Uh, 
Crime always said, uh, we, we always told each other we, we would really only ever open for two bands, uh, the Ramones or the Sex Pistols. Well, lo and behold, the Sex Pistols were coming to town. And uh, we were offered uh, to open for the Sex Pistols. We were very happy about that. But when we found out that the Avengers, a band we considered to be our, our juniors and, and, and had always opened for us, uh, when we found out that they were in the second slot and we were in the third slot, well, that was just completely unacceptable. And we registered our protest. Uh, they said, take it or leave it. We said, we'll leave it. And as a result, the nuns uh, took, our, took that third slot. And we just laughed and laughed. We thought that was the funniest thing we'd ever heard, the nuns opening for the Avengers. I mean, in retrospect, who cares we we cared and we thought other people cared but we weren't when you're in a band you're not thinking straight you're like in a you're like in a family that's at war with the world and that's the way we considered it and we just we had all kinds of strange delusions about what our quote fans unquote were thinking uh at any given moment really the people who came to the mav came there to get drunk, to get high, to hang out, and to be part of the scene. They really didn't care that much about all this behind-the-scenes machinations of, of hierarchy. and it, 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 That was all in our minds. Right. <laughs> but it's part of what makes crime great, I think. That, that, that the self-belief, I, I think especially of Frankie and Johnny, uh, you know, gave you that swagger and that confidence that was so perfect. It fitted the music so perfectly. It's true. Uh, Frankie and Johnny, in their minds, were huge. They were huge stars. And Frankie, particularly, lived his life like a huge star. And it was completely at odds with reality. Completely. And eventually, that, that rift uh, destroyed him. But he lived it, and the band was better for it, up to a point, up to the point that Frankie became his own worst enemy, as, as we all were at the time, really. Yeah. But I was really trying, I really tried, when I joined the group, I kind of took over the management responsibilities, which was something that, you know, hadn't really been dealt with very much. And I really tried to kind of pull, pull us together and move us in a singular direction. I even took demos that we recorded uh, down to Los Angeles and met with major, uh, major labels and tried to interest them in the band. And I, I remember being in one major label executive's office and put the cassette of our demos in and he listened to it and said, this is not a song. <laughs> That's all he said. That was the end of the meeting. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I had to. I had to go back to the band and say our songs are not songs. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that. I mean, you had, you did quite a lot of recording in '78 and '79. I mean, was I mean, the, was that purpose to get a record deal to record an album? What was the goal, and why didn't it end up happening? It's uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, the goal, of course was to make an album. The goal was to have someone else pay for it. 
So I guess that implied that we were looking for some kind of a deal, and we were. Uh, we were able to convert uh, personal relationships and friendships into studio time. Particularly, I became very close friends with Patty Gleason, her husband, Pat Gleason, who was an accomplished composer uh, who did soundtracks for Bruce Conner films and did a lot of commercial work, was one of the first owners of a Synclavier synthesizer, a very expensive high-end synthesizer in the early days of synthesis. Uh, he had a beautiful record, had built a beautiful recording studio called Different Fur Recording in the Mission District in San Francisco. Through my friendship with Patty and my relationship with Henry Kaiser, who was uh, one of the heirs to the Kaiser aluminum fortune, but who was uh, had sort of rejected all that and was a experimental guitarist in the in the new music scene. I uh, asked him if he would come into the studio with us and pr produce some songs, and he agreed. So we kind of like got our got our foot in the door there, recorded a couple songs. Of course, it was my first time in the studio ever playing drums. And for those of you out there who know, you know, but there is a, there, there is a lot of pressure on a drummer in a studio where you're playing is under a microscope. And I'd never played to a click track before. And it was, uh, the results were a little spotty, to say the least. But we did emerge with some songs. We eventually went back with uh, and recorded a couple more songs with the engineer at that time, a guy named Stacy Baird, uh, produced a couple more songs with us. I can't get you out of my mind. And then, through Patty Gleason, I had become friends with Huey Lewis. She established a sort of lunch club that met uh, every couple weeks of people who she kind of handpicked, of people she thought were interesting in the music scene and were trying to do something unusual and, and, and tried to create a little group where we could, we could all talk and meet together. Well, Huey was in that, that group. And at that time, he was out of the band Clover and had started uh, Huey Lewis and the News, but they were not really getting anywhere. And it was actually Patty Gleason who introduced Huey to Bob Brown, who was a local manager. And it was Bob Brown who got them signed and created the massive phenomenon that they became. They later became. But at this time, Huey was uh, working for a health food distributor and was uh, uh, peddling things like uh, no-fat cheese and weird things like that. And when, when we would meet, he would often bring some of these bizarre health food items uh, for us to try. But <laughs> he was a very affable guy, fun guy, and got interested in the band. Of course, he had no real interest in in punk rock or anything like that. He was very main, always very mainstream. He was always talking about hit records, hit records, hit records. I, I never saw anyone so dedicated to the concept of making hit records. But we asked him, I asked him if he would produce a session with crime and he did. 
So we did uh, three more songs at Different Fur. And he brought in uh, Sean Hooper, who was his keyboard player from the news, to lay down some keyboard tracks on, uh, on a couple songs. And produced, you know, some interesting... They, those were interesting songs. And we thought that they would, uh, we would, they would result in a single, but we kind of used those as demos, again, to try to get to the next step of having somebody commit to putting out an album and, and paying for it. But that, uh, that didn't really happen, as we had hoped. Around the same time, we met a guy named Mort Mortiarty, who had been a manager for the Tubes up to the point that they got successful. He, he was driving a taxi cab at the time because the, the Tubes had ruined him because he, when they finally signed a major deal, they dumped him and then turned around and sued him for having managed them without a, a California artist management license. So he had been completely reamed and was looking for something to do. So managing crime was a, an appropriate step for him. But most importantly, out of that relationship, which was very short-lived, he connected us to a, a very established producer named Elliot Mazer, who at that time had a recording studio in San Francisco in the South of Market District called His Master's Wheels. This is a a beautiful room. It was the biggest room in San Francisco. It was a, it was a warehouse that he had converted into a, a recording studio with a gigantic room with uh, a lot of uh, reverberant sound in the room. So uh, he agreed to record us, but sort of on a very limited basis. We went into his studio and set up and played live, just like as if we were on stage everything being recorded at once, and everything being mixed directly to two-track. So there were no retakes, there was no manicuring of anything, there was no adjusting of anything other than what was going on live during the recording. But luckily, we went in two nights in a row and laid down the same songs, and then later, uh, those became uh, side one of the San Francisco's Doomed, uh, LP that eventually did see the light of day, and uh, they were really well-produced sessions. Uh, re- recently, I uh, I saw the uh, the Neil Young Harvest movie and was very pleased to see Elliot Mazur all over that. He was the producer of that record and and plays a very prominent role in the film. Yeah, I mean, eventually all this stuff did come out, and, and it really is great. It should have there should have been a crime album in about 1979, and absolutely maybe it, would been, it would have been a different story, I think. Yeah, and it, I think it would have happened if what else happened in 1979 hadn't happened, which was the 
uh, introduction of heroin into the group. Uh, other drugs seemed to work okay, but when heroin came in, that's when things really began to unravel. Uh, Frankie particularly began missing rehearsals, uh, not coming in, not wanting to play, um, was very lethargic and uncooperative, and that pretty much signaled the end of things for me. So I got in to the band around uh, mid-77, and I left around, um, near, I guess, near the end of 79. And, and uh, Ripper, Ripper actually left before you did, right? Yes. Uh, there was a time where, uh, well, this was uh, going back a little earlier as the cracks began to form in the band. We, we tried a, a very audacious experiment by, uh, by putting together a, a tour, but we were nervous about our appeal and our, our, our we were worried about attracting a crowd outside of our home base. So I had the idea of doing a, a, a crime tour where we would bring fans with us to seed the crowd like clouds for rain and created the crime fun bus tour. So we made a package deal where you would get a, a ride to Los Angeles you would get, uh, I believe it was three nights at the Tropicana Motel, which was the punk rock motel of Los Angeles where all the bands stayed. You would get admission to all the shows. I think we had four shows booked. I think one got canceled. So I think we did three shows and, um, and a ride back for $50. So even, even in 1978 dollars, this was, uh, this was a pretty darn good deal, but I negotiated the rates at the at the hotel at the motel and set everything up and rented the buses. So during that that trip, Frankie expressed his desire to stop playing guitar for the first time and front the band as a singer. Uh, you you describe this as a power move, but I think the motivation behind it was more uh, laziness. I, 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 don't, I don't think Frankie ever enjoyed playing the guitar. I don't think he worked at it very hard. And I think it became kind of a burden to him, and he just wanted to be rid of it. Uh, I don't think he, he, he saw himself elevating to the front of the band in terms of leading it. He just wanted to get the guitar off his neck. That, that's my, that was my impression. Uh, this, this put all of the weight on Johnny and... Johnny was not pleased about that. Johnny's guitar playing was always uh, rudimentary. And the question of without Frankie's counterpoint, would you know, what would the sound be like? It would seem too like it wasn't going to work. And it never really did work with Johnny playing alone on guitar. So these cracks began to form as Frankie became less interested in 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 the work of being in a band that's what it really boiled down to and his his girlfriend at the time i think was urging him uh, to well i'm sorry i'm mixing this up uh, ripper's girlfriend at the time 
was urging him to look for more fertile ground or do something else. So the dissatisfaction level in the band among all of us began to rise. And Ripper left the group. Our roadie at the time, a guy named Joey Decay, uh, stepped up and took Ripper's place on bass. One of our attempts to expand the punk rock scene out of the Mubuhai Gardens uh, took us to the boarding house, which is a, a real, um, a, a well-established venue, definitely several rungs up the ladder, uh, maybe not even on the same ladder from the Mubuhai Gardens. It was um, a, a classic San Francisco venue. And we were able to book a Friday and Saturday night there, being the first punk band to ever play there. And we hoped that our crowd and that a new crowd would find us there, but those shows were not well attended and were depressing for the band. We did have an interesting concept. Friday night, we, uh, we enlisted this band called the, uh, the Buddy Holly Jr. Show, a band I had seen on an obscure cable television channel playing, and I thought, we got to get these guys. We love Buddy Holly. And this guy was a great Buddy Holly impersonator and had a band to, to boot. So we thought well, that would be a great opener for us. They were great. Um, however, they didn't draw. The second night, we thought, well, let's get the residents to open for us. So I contacted the residents, and they, were, they, they would have done it. But they said uh, they didn't have, they were like between shows. They didn't have a, uh, they weren't ready to go. But they said, uh, we can give you Snakefinger. <laughs> and Snakefinger was a guitarist who was in the residence, not in the residence. Nobody knows for sure. But they definitely, he worked with the residence. They took him under their wing. So it was all kind of the same, part of the same cryptic corporation family. So we were happy to get Snakefinger. And he was great. The residents showed up at the show in their full tuxedos and eyeball heads and top hats and sat, we gave them a sort of a special box uh, off to the side where they waved to the crowd during the show. It was great. Uh, however, Snakefinger didn't draw either. So the shows were not well attended, and I think that was the last time that a, that a, uh, a band from the punk scene played the boarding house for a very, very long time. Yeah. So that was one of the last shows that you did with Crime. Yeah, um, yeah, that was uh, that was definitely towards the end. So that's when things really clearly were not progressing from my point of view, and I decided to cut my losses. And I had plenty of losses at that point in the band, and uh, and leave. At that point, uh, Ripper came back. Joey was. Uh, reassigned to play synthesizer. Johnny had an interest in a kind of a techno direction. So the synthesizer kind of fit with that. And eventually, and then when I left, uh, Britley Black came back. Uh, he and, and, and Ripper were always uh, very close friends. And uh, with me out of the way, uh, they were happy to bring him back. Frankie and Johnny, I think, weren't really in much of a position to make much of a deal about it. Um, they had had plenty of differences with Britley, but overlooked them. And around this time, they, they established a relationship with a, a club in Berkeley called Berkeley Square. 
which was owned by uh, a couple of guys who had big ambitions and big plans and apparently took crime under their wing and put them on a payroll of $100 a week, which was like amazing to the band at the time. Uh, Because they had heroin habits to feed. They had heroin habits to feed and and their girlfriends were, were doing that at the time for them, but to give their girlfriends even $100 a week of relief was was a huge deal. And that went on for a short period of time uh, before uh, Johnny eventually pulled the plug on the, on the whole venture. And, and, and there it lay, buried in the sands of time. <laughs> and in that uh, format, they did record one last crime single. And I know crime fans are kind of divided on this one, Maserati. Yes. Now, Maserati, uh, well, that single really really demonstrated the two directions that Frankie and Johnny were pulling the band in, and they were almost diametrically opposed. Uh, Johnny was interested in moving into kind of a a cool, futuristic uh, sound, and he was open to uh, different instrumentation like synthesizer. Frankie sort of regressed to his rockabilly roots, and went back in that direction. So that, that single really shows the, the real bifurcation of the band just at the point that it's falling apart. So I think both songs are good. And more importantly, they're, they, were, they were honest manifestations of the inner workings of the minds of Frankie and Johnny. I, I like it too. I grew to I grew to like it. I, it was it's kind of the ugly duckling of the repertoire of the discography, but yeah, I've grown to like this single too. Years later, Maserati became uh, the 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 source of the biggest single chunk of income that crime ever had. I was contacted years, years later uh, by, the, by a, a, an advertising company that said they wanted to use Maserati as the soundtrack for a commercial for K-Swiss uh, athletic shoes in Europe. And uh, I thought, um, wow, okay. So uh, Johnny agreed, and we made the deal. And that, that was the biggest payday crime ever had. <laughs> Though it was almost like a hit hit single in the commercial yeah. world. You, yeah, you might ask how I be how I stayed involved in in crime's business after I left the group. Well, I had uh, formed a publishing company, and we rec- we published all crime's music under that my company's. So uh, so I was able to uh, do something very important for a band, which is to unify all the rights so that deals could be made. Had I not made a deal with Ripper about his rights in the band, his performance rights on the, on the songs, and with Frankie, you know, I would never have been able to broker these deals for the band. It would have been complete chaos. 
But uh, I would encourage any band out there to have a unified set of rights regarding every the image, the music, every aspect of the band, because that's the only way you can ever really do business. Right. So what happened to the members of crime after this 1981-82 breakup? Maybe you could go through and tell us what everybody did. Well, let's see. Starting at the beginning, I can't tell you what happened to Chris Cat. I never met the guy, the first crime drummer. Uh, Ricky Williams, a.k.a. Ricky Tractor, uh, went on to form The Sleepers, who were, were, were a very good band. Uh, they, they were good because they were, they were good, but they were also good because Ricky fronted the band and his complete out-of-control Never the same twice, uh, completely unpredictable persona was one of the main features of the band. They were always great to see. He might be just passed out on the stage through the set, or he might be in a manic phase. You never knew. But uh, I I really did like the sleepers. And then eventually Ricky uh, succumbed to... uh, to some kind of drug-related death. I, I don't know all the particulars of it. Strangely, years later, when a, a kind of crime reunion band was formed in 2005 to uh, headline a three-day punk rock festival in Rome, Italy, we did an in-store uh, appearance at uh, Amoeba Records in San Francisco. And as we were signing things at a table after we played a few songs... Uh, this guy comes up and I'm looking at Ricky, I'm looking at Ricky Tractor. I, I'm like, what, what's going on here? How can this be? He not only was Ricky Tractor, but he was Ricky Tractor at the same age as when I knew him. And, uh, of course it was Ricky's son. Oh, wow. And I was just floored. He was the absolute image of Ricky. And I don't think he ever met his father or if he did it was very he was very very young when ricky died so we had a really nice talk it was just wild to see that it was it was uh it was freaky but okay so that's ricky um britley was in a number of bands uh I, when he left crime he played for a band called the ready maids which were a band that was sort of like kind of like the monkeys they were kind of handpicked by a record label to put together to become a sort of a, a commercial act. That, that never really panned out too well. But uh, Britley also was a hard partier and eventually succumbed to his partying at a, at a way too early age. Uh, the next to go was Frankie, who never really recovered from the breakup of crime. Uh, descended deeper into uh, drug addiction and poverty and uh, eventually succumbed to the uh, the pressures of, of that. A very, very sad uh, day when Frankie died. Uh, I had a friend uh, who worked as a nurse at the San Francisco General Hospital who turned out knew Frankie very well. He was a frequent visitor there and uh, told me that uh, he had died of sepsis, that he had just completely, he was riddled with infection. 
and uh, succumbed to that. So it was a horrible, horrible death. Really super sad. Uh, let's see. Then uh, I guess that brings us up to Johnny. Johnny uh, had a, had myriad health problems over the years. He he, unlike Frankie, had been able to extricate himself from heroin addiction. Uh, became a, a counselor in a methadone clinic and worked for years doing that and knew addiction from the inside out and I think was a very effective counselor. He became an author, uh, wrote, uh, I believe he has four books in, in print. They're all worth reading. He's a kind of a visionary writer. I absolutely agree with that. I just want to emphasize, yeah, read Johnny's books. They're, they're, they're fabulous. They are. Johnny really had a had a writer's soul at the at the foundation of everything, and it was a seminar that he took with William Burroughs that really changed the course of his life. He idolized Burroughs, and Burroughs gave him the advice to uh, to be a writer. You have to drive a cab and be addicted to heroin. So Johnny followed his advice, and and lo and behold, he was right. It came to pass, however, at great cost. Johnny didn't like doctors. He really didn't like doctors. And as his health problems began to stack up, circulation problems with his hands and feet, then he really he really couldn't play guitar anymore. And still he was thinking about music and writing lyrics and and late in his life we he came to me and said he wanted to form a band and he wanted me in it and I said, sure, whatever you say. And we did a project with some other musicians we brought in. And that project was called Naked Beast. We recorded an album produced by my son here in the studio in uh, my home here at the complex down downtown San Francisco. And, and again, it was an expansion of Johnny's vision. It combined his earlier projects. He had done had a little band that did an album called uh, the, the Venus Hunters, TVH, that he had worked on with Joey. So Johnny, you know, never, never stopped. He, he was a creative machine, and I was really happy to, to, to work with him again. And the Naked Beast album was to be his last musical project. Uh, Johnny succumbed to uh, melanoma about uh, four years ago. And uh, he is uh, deeply missed. Uh, I really uh, consider his death to have been completely avoidable had he uh, sought treatment for his uh, ailments. But he made a decision not to do that. That was his to make. But I'll never truly understand it. So who does that leave? That leaves Ron the Ripper, who's still, thankfully, alive and kicking. He's working with a band called the Dark Gypsies uh, that he's reformed. They've recorded a couple albums. I They play every once in a while. I get wind of them performing. But uh, he remains uh, one of the strangest characters I've ever met. <laughs> uh, that, that doesn't change. Uh, right before the pandemic... I was able to complete uh, a film, uh, the best recording of crime ever done, live in concert, that was recorded on 16 millimeter film back in 1978. Footage that had 
sat, sat around unlooked at and uh, unworked on for 40 years until finally uh, I was able to turn it into uh, turn it into the uh, a piece a, a watchable piece with the assistance of a of an editor uh, and director John Bastian who when he caught wind of this uh, said he he would do anything to work on it so he did and he made uh, the film that's been released as San Francisco's first and only rock and roll movie Crime 1978 which we were proud to show at the Ugly Things 40th anniversary celebration that'd be a definite definite high point that was it was Amazing seeing that. I mean, I'd watched it online before, but seeing it on a larger screen with a loud sound system, it was like seeing crime, what it must have been like seeing crime in 1978. And people were just spontaneously applauding after each song. It was so yeah. powerful. And so you got to see how great that band was. You were really something special. Well, thank you. I appreciate that coming from you. That means a lot because I have such great admiration for you and 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 your work, uh, both on stage and in print, but uh, we what what really emerged out of that film was a, a very immersive experience. You, as, as I've said, you can almost smell the urine cakes in the from the wafting in from the bathroom. Uh, it's really it really puts you there. So, and then that leaves uh, little old me. I, oh, no, no, Joey. Let's not forget Joey. Joey uh, went on to work in kind of in the world of academia. Uh, he did a lot of studio recording, became a very accomplished. He was always the most technical, uh, technically inclined uh, member of the group. And he went on to a career uh, in recording and music. And uh, he and I are still in touch and get together uh, fairly regularly, and uh, he's a he's a great guy who looks back on the, those times with uh, the kind of wistfulness that you would expect. And then there's and then there's me. And when I left crime, I uh, was already had been involved in movies and television production for a period of time. But it was the friendship that I made during my time with crime, with Bruce Connor who was uh, at that point a very well-known and established uh, artist working in a variety of media, including photography, painting, sculpture, assemblage, and film. He and I bonded during those crime years. He was a fan of the band and photographed the band. And his photographs from the Mubuhai Gardens are are. are very famous, very collectible, and were published in a book uh, years ago. We began working on uh, on a project uh, to uh, to bring together a reunion of a very famous black gospel singing quartet, the Soul Stirrers, a group that he had loved, and I didn't realize it at the time. He confided in me that he had been going to a church. A, a, uh, an African-American church in Vallejo, California, whose pastor was uh, the, was Paul Foster, who had been one of the lead singers of the Soulsters during the height of their fame around, 19, uh, around 1950. This is, of course, the group that Sam Cooke originally sang with before he uh, left and went, went into the pop field. So 
at the height of their fame, they were they had a nationally syndicated radio show out of Chicago, and they were they were kind of the Beatles of gospel music for a period of time. Anyway, so we began working on a film project, and that was kind of when I made the tr- transition to being a film producer. And that project, which we began in 1982, is um, due to be finished momentarily. I'm still working on it. This has been the great albatross hanging around my producerial neck for all these years. It's the it's the film that's I've never been able to quite uh, get finished, but it's actually happening now. So the world the, the the world is about to see this bizarre experiment that took place in the early 1980s with one of the great gospel groups of all time. And uh, I went on to make other films with other people, quite a few. Uh, I guess I'm probably best known for The Devil and Daniel Johnston, a film that I produced with uh, Jeff Fierzig directing. And uh, Excellent it, film, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Jeff did say something great about the crime film. He said uh, the, 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 the crime film was filmed with five 16-millimeter uh, cameras running uh, at the same time to capture uh, the action in, in the room and on the stage. He said there is nothing like 16 millimeter to uh, put you there, to bring you to the place. And that's exactly what, what I think that that film ended up doing. It really, uh, it lets people know what it, what it was really like. Because it was really, at a, it was filmed at a time before the scene had solidified into what we know as the punk scene today. And you get to see this incredible variety of mix of people, hippies and, and street people and transvestites and just kind of, you know, all the outcasts of San Francisco were kind of drawn together in one place to listen to this kind of weird, aggressive, challenging, some would say unlistenable music. And that was, uh, that was the scene. That was what it was like. Yeah, that's what it was like. What I remember in England too. It wasn't a bunch of people dressed up like Johnny Rotten or Dee Dee Ramone. It, no. it was just regular kids, regular people, mm-hmm. and a few people that would punk rock costumes or whatever. It it became very stylized later, and there was a, a sort of a rule book that came with it. But back then, it was way more interesting. It was yeah, way true. more diverse, you know. Yeah, and yeah. The film really captures that, and and the natural charisma of Frankie and Johnny, especially mm-hmm. the, ca- the camera loved those guys. <laughs> Two great, great front men. Mm-hmm. They knew it. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. They uh, cultivated that very carefully, but yes, they're beautiful. They're two really great looking guys. You had Johnny who was tall and Frankie who was small, uh, who was short, much shorter. And the two of them together, it just, and the whole Frankie and Johnny, just the names and the, I, I just everything worked together. They, people didn't know if they were, if they were lovers, because of course Frankie and Johnny were lovers. Uh, of course they weren't. This added to the whole sort of gay mystique of the band and how we were embraced uh, by the gay community. Right. Uh, and uh, that, which, which was a big part of the early punk rock scene everywhere. It was. It was. Yeah. Uh, because a lot. Because what what you really had, in addition to just sort of regular people there were all of these kind of very visionary artists and thinkers in the crowd. You know, you, you had Bruce Conner standing there taking your picture. Uh, the magnitude of that didn't hit me at the time, but, you know, you had Joe Reese, who had uh, gotten out of the, uh, the uh, armed services and 
with an early generation portable video camera, was the only person shooting uh, live footage of the bands during that time. Uh, later, and, and this was the birth of Target Video, which is now finally being recognized for the uh, incredible archive that it is. As um, as his his tapes, his entire archive has been turned over to UCLA for restoration, and uh, the, these uh, tapes are now beginning to emerge. Uh, the first to emerge was the Cramps and the Mutants at the Napa State uh, Mental Hospital, legendary footage, and then uh, my friend Mike Plant did a little documentary. We were there to be there uh, that contextualizes that footage and terms of what was happening at the time in terms of the politics of the state and and the federal government it's a beautiful little piece highly recommended and then of course soon to emerge the complete crime at San Quentin footage that has never seen the light of day only clips right so, all we've ever really seen is uh, piss on your dog and we need more that's something I had on my list to ask you and we kind of bypassed it so tell us about Crime playing San Quentin, Labor Day, nineteen seventy-eight. Yeah, I this mean, was how a... did that happen, and how was that experience? <laughs> okay, so how it came about is again from uh, sort of art connections that I had. Uh, the artist Lynn Hirschman, now Lynn Hirschman Leeson, was aware of the band. She was kind of a contemporary of Bruce Connors and. Uh, was an artist working in similar realms to his. And she approached me about the idea of performing at San Quentin. We had previously done a, a crime had appeared in a performance art piece by a guy named Daryl Sapien, who uh, wrote this piece called Crime in the Streets. He wrote it before engaging crime to play police officers which is what we did because we had the uniforms and it was it was this piece was held in the um, Jack Kerouac alley the little the little alley next door to City Lights bookstore in North Beach and uh, I ha I have the script around here somewhere and I've got a lot of photographs but it was complete chaos the the alley was completely packed with people who were trying to see this thing I remember somebody was carried in on a bed, a four-poster bed, and crime was there. We were there to be uh, cops. To uh, We were supposed to be very aggressive with the crowd and push people and, uh, and, uh, and sort of uh, simulate uh, beating them and things like that. So it was, I don't remember a lot from that night, but it was through that that she realized we were open to uh, different types of... Uh, environments and things. So she said, how would you like to play San Quentin? She was involved with an organization called Museum Without Walls that was interested in putting art in places in places outside of museums, in real life situations. So as crime, you know, really, I hate to say it, but it's really true. Crime really was kind of an art band in a way. Very much so, I think, in, in Johnny's mind. Uh, art was always a big part of what we did. And uh, we considered what we did to be art. So we said, sure. Well, as it turned out, this was a Labor Day concert. It was to take place out in the exercise yard of San Quentin. 
Uh, we were told as the day drew near that San Quentin had what's called a no-hostage rule, meaning that if by some chance a prisoner were to grab you and try to hold you hostage to gain release, that the administration of the prison would not negotiate your release. So that, was that they said, was for our protection. It kept everybody safe because everybody knew the rules. Well, um, we signed the waiver that, <laughs> that, uh, where we agreed to these terms, but we were plenty nervous going in. And the day of the show, our equipment was there. We were able to take a Joe Reese with us, so Target Video was there recording. That was very, very, uh, very good thing as the world will soon find out, I hope, when they see the full show. But uh, we went in and set up on the yard, on, on this uh, slab in the far end of the exercise yard. So as we looked out at the crowd, uh, we could see that there was a, a, a clear dividing line between the uh, white prisoners and the non-white prisoners. They did not mingle with each other. They sat separately. So there were a number of bands on the bill that day, including some African-American bands, and I forget all the different types. It was a a broad array of bands. Uh, We were certainly the only rock and roll band or anything even approaching punk uh, that was on the bill. So when an African-American band would play, all of the white prisoners would stand up as a group and walk to the far end of the yard, as far away as they could get from the stage, to uh, express their displeasure. Conversely, when uh, a white band would play, the non-white prisoners would stand up as a group and move to the far end of the yard. So I like to say that when we came on, everybody got up and left. And they did. I mean, they, they, they were not prepared to see four guys in San Francisco regulation police uniforms get on stage and plug those Marshall stacks in and just <laughs> do our thing. They were not ready for that. But we were smart enough to have brought uh, some of our girlfriends with us. And when the prisoners saw the girls... Then everybody came back to watch the show because the girls were, they were dancing in front of the stage in a kind of demilitarized zone. The, the prisoners were kind of roped off. And then there was this kind of maybe eight foot, eight to 10 foot gravel uh, space in front of the stage. The girls were dancing in the gravel. And I remember the prisoners in the front were picking up pebbles and trying to bounce them off of the girls' asses. It was uh, to get their attention. But uh, that was a very smart thing that we did. Otherwise, uh, we would have been playing to, uh, to an empty field. Uh, one of the highlights was that uh, I was, uh, someone pointed out a window in the main building across the, the way and told me that that was Sirhan Sirhan's uh, solitary confinement cell. So I'd like to think that uh, he heard us that day and uh, that, that that was one of the worst days of his life. I'd like to, I'd like to think about that. <laughs> But uh, it, it was a remarkable day, and uh, we made it out in one piece. And the press that we generated from that was great. 
We even made it into the uh, World Weekly News, uh, the sleaziest of all the supermarket tabloids. And that's that's the piece of press for which I am certainly most proud. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, that was kind of a peak achievement in some ways. It definitely was. And uh, and I hope that the, the full the full uh, uh, show will will be in people's hands in the not too distant future. I'm working on it. What would be great would be if some of the uh, prisoners that were there that day emerged with their perspective on that whole experience. I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to know it uh, if I could locate any of them. Uh, there's a possibility that could be that could happen, but uh, it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them never forgot it. <laughs> as I was walk, as we were walking past the crowd to get to the stage, as we entered to the the uh, field, the the yard, uh, one of the prisoners said, "Hank," and I turned. I I was like, "What?" And uh, this guy, this, this guy I didn't know. He reached out his hand, and I reached mine out, and he put a note into it. And I I thought, "What is going on here?" And I, uh, I opened the note, and it was a note from a friend of mine who had, was working at the prison as a guard. Uh, a woman I knew was a guard there, and she knew that I was coming to play, and the note uh, was from her, and it, she said that she was stationed in another area of the prison and would not be able to attend the show that day. <laughs> wow. So it was her, and she had given it to some trusted prisoner friend of hers to to give to me. So I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing all those memories and stories and insights. It's been fascinating. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. It was so great meeting you and 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 being a part of the celebration. And it's just it just really. Oh. It really was wonderful in uh, ways I, I can never express. Oh, that, I mean, likewise. I mean, it was a highlight for me and for Anya, too. Um, that day was, I'll never forget it. Well, one more thing I'd really like to get in, and that is the importance that Ugly Things has served in the preserving and expanding the legacy of crime. Uh, the cover story in issue 14 was a towering achievement by Michael Lucas, who is a longtime friend and fan, and uh, the brother I never had, who did a, a great job. And uh, and the legend of crime has only expanded uh, since, since the band existed, in no small part to your dedication, your friendship with Johnny, and the coverage that you've given us, not once, but twice, in Ugly Things. And Two cover stories, yeah, number 43 yes. and number 14. That's right. I love crime. I love you. I love Johnny and the, the music. It's just, it's one of the few bands from that era that I return to all the time. That's what punk rock really is. Of course, from the band who never claimed to be punk rock. Never, never punk rock. Always rock and roll. We didn't, we were not joiners. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's for sure. Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and hosted by Mike Stacks. That's me. 
The latest issue of Ugly Things magazine is available at the very coolest records and bookstores and at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and spread the words to your friends. We would also really appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For just a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. And there's a lot of it up there now from two seasons. It's all going to be accessible to Patreon members. Your contribution will help us to keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, psychedelic music, and more. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Keith Patterson, Sophia Swartz, Dean Curtis, David Biasotti, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Riger, and Derek Davidson. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.